Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance and my guest today is Robert Rosenberg. He's the former Chief Executive Officer of Dunkin' Donuts. Had that role from 1963 until his retirement in 1998. He's also the author of Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. So Robert, thanks uh, for joining us. Thanks for the invite, John. So can I just start off with a really lousy joke and say, I hope this is a really sweet show. Um, you've never heard anything like that before, I bet. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> All right. So you have, uh, you retired in 1998. So what's that? Uh, this is 2020, 22 years ago. So uh, why now to write, write a book about uh, leadership lessons? Fundamentally, I, um, I was busy with the, during the 35 years that I was running Duncan. And then my second career, I basically was an adjunct professor at Babson mm. College, mm. Uh, refining a lot of the ideas that I had. And, uh, I was also serving on a number of boards uh, yeah. in my industry. And so this now, after that career ended, it seemed the appropriate time to take stock. What I had learned, put together over a, a sort of a lifetime yeah. of experiences and tried to convey that as best I could to the next generation of, of leadership. So I'm sure, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of people are very interested in, in some of the stories that you can tell about uh, growing Dunkin' Donuts, but, but, but essentially when you took over in 1963, I mean, Dunkin' Donuts at that time was, you know, a big, but still little family business, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And it wasn't called the company I took over. Yeah. in 63 wasn't called Dunkin' Donuts. It was called universal food systems. It was a, uh, a hodgepodge of uh, seven or eight little food service businesses. Duncan was among them. Yeah. It also was sort of the last group of stores that had opened were more like diners. So yeah. it was a very different business than what the consumer would see today back uh, some 50 years ago. So here's the question then, and you, you get to answer in hindsight, I suppose, uh, like a lot of people do. I mean, at any point, did you envision running a $2 billion business? <laughs> yeah. And, and if so, how does one do that? No, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it was a long journey and a little bumpy. As I tell yeah. my children, life is yeah. lumpy. Uh, that's true in a human life. And it's also true in the life of a business. But uh, when I did get there, uh, I just was fresh out of business school, a right. cocky 25-year-old. And I thought I saw a way to fix some of the problems that existed within the business. I had that opportunity while I was in school to be able to write papers and study what the company was doing and how we might work our way out of it. Um, and I was under some pressure. Um, my dad, who was eighth grade educated, uh, wanted always to be a millionaire after taxes and always was looking to sell the business. So uh, I found myself in order to keep the business, not only did we have to straighten it out, but I also had to go public rather quickly to help him equitize his holdings and keep the business from being sold. So I know you didn't invent the model, but I think you're, you were very influential in, in developing what the modern franchise model looks like uh, today in America. I think, I, I think Duncan was a real leader in that, weren't they? Yes, that's true. We were for, among the, among the, uh, the front runners in that whole growth that post world war two growth of franchising, which yeah. is a little understood and, really a wonderful opportunity uh, 
for, for most would-be entrepreneurs. But I think at the time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, at the time in the 60s, 70s, I mean, there was a whole lot of people that were uh, running pretty shady operations, uh, calling them franchises. I mean, I think a lot of the legislation that now exists at the state level was kind of due to some people that were, you know, maybe taking advantage of people in that model. Very true. Uh, uh, when people saw the success, first of McDonald's going public, second was Kentucky Fried Chicken, third w- was Duncan. Uh, an awful lot of promoters thought all it really required was a name in order to be able to generate a franchise opportunity. So you had Mini Pearl Chicken and Kenny Rogers Roasters and uh, Jerry Lewis Theaters. And you had a lot of people moving into the space that really hadn't refined a, a real going forward business opportunity. And we can't just sell franchises. Uh, and that created an awful lot of stir and, and threatened the very existence of the franchise system. Yeah. The International Franchise Association and the government stepped in uh, and started to regulate or suggest uh, different kinds of ways for the consumer to be protected against these not ready for prime time operations. So, so, so let's talk a little bit about the growth of, and, and this you of course share as you know some of your dozen lessons. But um, maybe, maybe share a couple of the things that that you think. Well, gosh, these were lessons I learned the hard way. And probably one of the best lessons that I learned, uh, and it really came at a fearful price. Uh, after having a successful, uh, basically in the 35 years, let me step, take a step back. Mm-hmm. Over the 35 years that I ran it, it, it really broke down to about six different eras of around five years each. The first five basically was streamlining uh, the hodgepodge of businesses and focusing on Dunkin' Donuts standardizing it and growing it and building a management team. The next five years, basically, I began to change the mission of the business and the objectives of the business. And and as a result of that, um, changed from a focused donut and coffee company to a franchise business where I would franchise many concepts. That was ill-conceived, not successful. And what it drove home to me in an unbelievably solid way is if you don't have the strategy right for business and second, the organization to support it, if those aren't spot on, it's almost nothing really can create success. So you got to get those two things right. That's the indelible lesson that I took away from the second five-year period. And that was a hard lesson where I kicked a stone. Uh, things went so bad. We had a loss year in 1973. Mm-hmm. The board uh, was intent on maybe making a change in leadership. Luckily, we had seen the error of our ways, fixed it, and I uh, was able to talk my way back and get letting them give me another quarter to see if we hadn't, in fact, straightened out the problem. But the next four eras of five years each, five eras, actually, after that, uh, we basically were on our way, never, never looked back. And that lesson that was learned by the eras of the second period were the ones that were really indelibly you know, etched in my mind. You want to talk a little bit about the family dynamic? I happen to have uh, two daughters that work in my business and have for 10 years. Uh, not the same as as uh, certainly uh, what, what you experienced, but um, was was taking over what essentially at that time had been your father's you know dream or vision. Um, was that a, a difficult transition actually for, for him as well as you? I'd say a couple of things about that. Number one, I think a family business – can be a terrific opportunity yeah. for young people because it provides you with something that you're close to, you know, that you possibly love, which was true in my case. 
and, a, and an opportunity that otherwise might not have existed. But it's by the same token, it comes with some unique challenges. And those are things I think that families ha- have to work out, you know, carefully, thoughtfully on their own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically uh, one of the lessons I did learn as I went along, despite the fact that my, my dad said he was retiring and turned the reins over to me, <laughs> I found that rarely, if ever, does a founder really ever believe they're retired. It's yeah. always their baby. Yeah. And a founder always has to be paid homage because without them, there would be no business. Yeah. By the same token, in order for a business to flourish, the competition is constantly changing. Uh, the, 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 the consumer, the end user is constantly changing. So you have to be in a position oftentimes to change some of the things that the founder put in place. And that can come with some conflict. <laughs> and, and that's where today, you, you know, a, a lot of love and a lot of conversations uh, and a lot of TLC go a long way <laughs> ironing out some of those rough spots as you try to adjust and adapt to business to make it flourish. Well, I, su- I suspect that um, a measure of success didn't hurt that either <laughs> as well. True. So, you know, you probably went through the same thing that your father did in some ways because, you know, you came in really with the mandate to, you know, to change a bunch of things. And it sounds like a lot of uh, rain was given to do that. But at some point you had to let go too, didn't you? I did. Uh, basically, as the business grows, you have no choice. Uh, you know, I think there's an old saying that uh, I, an executive can probably really only know about uh, 150 to 200 people. Once it gets beyond that size, then you have to rely upon managers and managers then have to manage. Then you require new processes, new procedures, new policies, all of which. So the nature of the job changes and uh, an effective CEO is going to be long lived, has to be able to make that kind of transition and uh, incredibly important. So the first role of a good leader is to be shepherding an appropriate strategy. The second is to surround yourself with an organization that basically has the ability to execute that strategy. And that's another great set of skills that's required for anybody who plans to to build a business over a long period of time. So most leaders that I've spoken with, uh, or most founders of companies that grow certainly beyond, you know, where they were originally, uh, actually have to learn how to be leaders. I mean, that's not something many people are actually born with, particularly when he gets into bigger technical leadership skills. Did you have um, a place that you went like a mentor or, you know, where you learned lessons or, or how, how did you develop your own personal leadership philosophy? A lot of it I I attribute to the starting at business school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was fortunate to have some great professors, one in business strategy, which enabled a young 25 year old to come out of school and to know what to pay attention to the language, how to go about it. It, and the importance of strategy. And I was able to see that didn't exist. But along the way, basically, it's a you know, you have this sort of after a second five year uh, problems that I ran into, I had to learn humility mm-hmm. and, and basically be open and um, I continually learn. So as a result of that, I attended seminars, read a lot of books, do an awful lot of reading, continually do that to this very day, and learned a lot from my colleagues. Basically, we had an organization that was together for a very long period of time, and and we really had a complementary set of, of skills. No one individual sort of was able to do it all, uh, and certainly that's not my style. My style coming to the job to begin with as a 25-year-old 
was much more comfortable with a collegial, collaborative style of leadership. Yeah. It's just yeah. the way I'm thrown. It's the way I'm built as a person. Uh, so, but, but, but there is an awful lot of continuing growing and that has continued on through a lifetime, uh, um, basically having to be quite open and stay humble and know what you don't know and be open to influences by lots and lots of people. As I said, some of my best, uh, teachers were my own colleagues, people I was in business with. I learned a lot from, from my team. All right. So, so far the questions have been really easy. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a really hard one now. All right. What was your, did you have a favorite donut? I did. I still, I still do. <laughs> I love, I love these jelly sticks. These are because uh, there are two kinds of major donuts. There's yeast and cake. These are the cake donuts. They're sort of like crawlers. They're, they're long and thin and they're filled on either end with either lemon or jelly. Jelly for Duncan is really apple and raspberry f- fruit fillings. And uh, those are my, those are my favorite. But I, but I like all donuts. I, I and they're delicious. Nothing better. And now let's hear a little bit about one of our sponsors, SimRush. This is an SEO tool that we use every single day. I love that it's more like a suite of tools because we can find competitive analysis. We can find everything about how to get and acquire more backlinks. There's this keyword magic tool that helps in our keyword research, all kinds of link building, rank tracking, everything you really need, including the ability to fix technical issues. And I love the reports that it produces because we use those with most of our clients. Check it out. It's SimRush, S-E-M-Rush.com. All right, now back to the interview. Can you point to um, any sort of single innovation or decision or two that you made that, you know, in hindsight was like, wow, that was a great decision? I think uh, back in the early 1980s, uh, we had opened up in the Philippines and the franchisee in the Philippines uh, were basically taking product away from the store that we had opened in downtown Manila in a section called Makati, and they were delivering it to convenience stores and gas stations, mm. and theaters. And and uh, our whole advertising campaign at the time was about supermarkets don't make their donuts like this. We were basically selling our product, with, made it within the four walls of the store and sold it within the four walls of the store. Right. And on my trip to Japan, I was going to stop in Manila and stop them from that practice. And when I got there, lo and behold, I found out that the that the, that the that the people that were behind it were the wives of the board members, that the franchise was held by a couple of prominent families in Manila, but they had taken other prominent families as stockholders in the enterprise. And the wives of these well-to-do families were getting these locations, having their household help deliver donuts and set up coffee and donut kiosks and all of these things delivered by Jitney, which is a way of transportation mm-hmm. in the Philippines, if you've ever been there. And, and these ladies, when I got there, um, began to teach me chapter and verse about how successful this operation was. And on the trip from Manila, I think I was on my way to either Thailand or to Tokyo. I remember being with the COO who joined me on the trip. And we spent the whole time talking about what if we were to, to, to take that same format of distribution and explode distribution a little bit like what Coca-Cola must have faced back in the years because originally Coca-Cola was only sold over a soda fountain. Yeah. When they put it in a bottle and took it wherever people worked, traveled, played, whatever, 
And that was the same kind of transformational thinking that took place on that plane ride as a result of the board members' wives uh, opening my eyes to, to a brand new way to go to market. And that was very revolutionary. We, uh, the return on investment at the unit level changed dramatically when we started to sell districts rather than individual stores where we had kitchens start to support many kiosks and, and outlets and train stations, airports, and other places where people work, travel to play. This was a big sort of breakthrough for us in terms of how we went to market. How about product innovation? Food can be a tricky thing. Um, you know, there's there's 2,000 kinds of coffee now and all kinds of different donuts. And, you know, you, you there's probably a lot of pressure uh, on a, a, a food business to innovate, you know, come up with what's going to be the new hot thing. Um, how did you navigate that kind of desire to create new things, but also then reinforce, you know, what worked. Basically we, we were uh, strong operators and we utilized the franchise system, but we were also first rate marketers. So we had product managers responsible for bakery products, for donuts and for beverages. And we would take ideas from any source and basically ballot test them, make sure product quality was strong we would test them in the marketplace to see if they resonated with the consumer. So it was very sophisticated, very advanced. So we were well out a year, 18 months in advance, looking at new products. We scoured what competition was doing, what generally was popular in packaged goods business and supermarkets. And, and it was the product manager's job basically to derive uh, responsibility for that kind of process. And, uh, we had inside the inside the company, we had 25 uh, headquarter employees who had been tested for acuity of taste, mm-hmm. and we would taste all products before we let them out to ensure not only were they safe and wholesome, but also that they really uh, lived up to our objective of having the best possible products available in, in the marketplace. So it was a whole process that was set up uh, in terms of providing news to the consumer. You know, we can do it through the a price off. We can do it news through price. You can do it through promotions and you can do it through new product offerings. So we always had uh, a number, maybe in the course of a year, three or four major product offerings that we would uh, unveil. And they were all ballot tested. They were all tested well in advance and had gone through that whole process I just described. Yeah. So you, um, at least from your bio, says your retirement was in 1998. Did you ever really retire? Um, I mean, <laughs> did you give up the reins? Uh- <laughs> yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, I think in my book, I say that one of the, one of the errors I think I made was I stayed on a bit too long mm-hmm. uh, when I had decided to, to retire. Uh, the owners of the company at the time were a large English company. They asked me to stay on for a couple of years and made it very compelling to do that before I got on with my second career. And uh, my, my, my strong advice is there is a time to exit the stage. You'll know it when, when it happens. And in my case, don't let it linger for any longer than six months. Uh, my team was very complimentary and very careful to make sure that my farewell was with all due dignity but, but basically, when the mantle is passed, you really should exit left as fast as possible. Well, well so one of the and things you – you know, which is awesome, but one of the things you talked about or you do talk about in the book is picking a successor. I mean, at, at, um, at, were you, were you um, at some point five years in advance you know, grooming somebody or was it very obvious you know, who was really going to be in line to be your successor? 
was grooming a couple of people that had the potential to, to assume responsibility. One of which was I, at the time I was running not only Dunkin' Donuts, but I was also running Baskin Robbins. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had t- two good executives uh, heading as president to each of those brands at the very end and basically selected the president to Dunkin' to assume responsibility. who was a 26-year employee. My, my experience is, and it's really supported by my research, is that of the 250 S&P uh, 250 companies that had changed uh, executives uh, from between 2014 to 2016, I think something on the order of 80 some odd changes out of the 250 companies, 61 of those were lifers, people mm-hmm. who had the business. Another uh, 10, I think, basically were recruited in advance of retirement to the CEO. So they had two or three or four years to get ready to assume that job. So they understood the culture from which they were going to run the business, understand how it operated and yeah. be able to ingrain themselves. So 90% of those um, new CEOs came from within the business. I'm a f- firm believer if that's possible, that's the best way to go forward and groom a success. So, Obviously, we've been talking about some very large companies, uh, uh, of which you know Duncan certainly was uh, uh, in that realm. Uh, the lessons in this book—do you feel that they are applicable to? Uh, I have a lot of small business owners that are listeners, growing companies that are listeners. Do you feel that uh, the lessons apply regardless of the size of the business? Obviously, there's some technical aspects, but would you say the lessons themselves apply? Absolutely. The book is uh, just a buffet of different experiences and stories that apply uh, early on for the would-be entrepreneur, the, the stories about franchising is an opportunity for people who are considering business ownership, the small business growth. I think the planning processes, the granular look at how to plan our compensation practices in terms of recruiting and retaining organizations would apply. I think there's something in the book for everyone, whether you be an entrepreneur and starting up a business, whether you're a small business trying to scale it, or whether or not you're a large company looking at how to best organize your board. I think there's something for everyone in the book. Awesome. Well, Robert, thanks for stopping by the, the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. Do you um, want to uh, share with people where they could maybe find out more or find the book itself? Uh, thanks, John. Yes, you can go to Around the Corner to Around the World. That'll introduce you to the book and the ability to be able to buy it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for stopping by and uh, hopefully we'll run into you someday out there in a, in a Dunkin' Donuts. I guess I should, I should, I should leave you with asking the question of, you know, how does, how does Dunkin' stand today in, in, in your view? Are you, are you, uh, are you pleased with the direction they've continued to head? Absolutely. The company has moved in the 22 years since I retired company has moved from strength to strength and is bigger and better than ever. Awesome. Well, thanks again for stopping by. And as I said, hopefully we'll we'll run into you someday out there on the road. My pleasure. Thanks.